What It Takes is brought to you by Google, leading the way toward a carbon-free future. By 2030, Google aims to operate on 24-7 carbon-free energy. That means completely eliminating carbon emissions from its electricity use, all day, every day. It's an ambitious goal, but Google is up for the challenge. Google has been on this energy journey for almost two decades, and now it's redrawing the roadmap to decarbonize electric grids and working with clean tech entrepreneurs and startups to get there. Achieving 24-7 carbon-free energy will require new technologies, new approaches to energy purchasing, and new policies. We'll tell you more later in the episode, so stay tuned. You can learn more by going to g.co forward slash carbon free by 2030. I'm Emily Kirsch, founder and CEO of Powerhouse. This is What It Takes, a show about the entrepreneurs making our zero carbon future a reality. In this episode, my conversation with Donnell Baird, the co-founder and CEO of Block Power. Block Power is a Brooklyn, New York startup electrifying and weatherizing buildings in underserved communities, slashing pollution and saving money. This includes housing units, churches, and community centers. Block Power was founded in 2012. It raised venture capital from Kapoor Capital and Andreessen Horowitz. But that process was not easy for a company with a majority Black leadership team. As a Black founder, Donnell was turned down 200 times before any venture fund was willing to back his vision. The mission for Donnell isn't just about hitting milestones for investors. It's about changing the fabric of underserved communities that are plagued by pollution and energy poverty. That's because Donnell has lived it himself. In this interview, I spoke with Donnell about how he channeled his frustration and anger around racial injustice into a business model for the energy transition. Donnell and I met when he was starting Block Power and I was starting Powerhouse. We've supported each other on our journeys ever since, and I'm grateful to call him a friend. This conversation was recorded in front of a live remote audience at the end of 2020. Donnell, your parents immigrated from Guyana, a culturally Caribbean country in South America in the 80s. You grew up in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn. And at the age of eight, you moved to Stone Mountain, Georgia, which is about a 30-minute drive from Atlanta. Why did your parents come to the U.S. from Guyana? And what was your childhood in Brooklyn like? So my dad uh, is a mechanical engineer. Uh, he ran a bauxite mine in Guyana, which is a a chemical input into aluminum. And so there's a big mining operation that the government ran and he kind of supervised that. Um, the industry collapsed. The country started uh, embracing socialism. The price of rice collapsed. And so that kind of collapsed the, the Guyanese economy. My mom also is having a lot of trouble with pregnancies. And so I'm actually her seventh pregnancy, but I was the first kid to make it. Um, and so they wanted some medical attention and they wanted to kind of get out of a difficult economic situation. So um, my dad had gone to college at Howard in D.C., which is actually where I was born. And uh, so he and my mom moved back. They had to start from scratch in Brooklyn. Uh, he started cleaning boilers, which was, I think, pretty tough for him. My mom started cleaning bedpans, which was even tougher for her. Um, and gradually, you know, they kind of rebuilt. Um, but, you know, for a while we were pretty poor. Um, and, you know, difficult circumstances in Brooklyn. Yeah. Tell me more about that. Like, what was what was childhood like in Brooklyn? I know that you ended up spending a lot of time in your bedroom because of how your parents were heating the apartment. Tell tell me about that. Yeah. So our, our building didn't have heat in Brooklyn. Um, 
the, the building didn't have a functioning boiler or heating system. And so uh, every night, uh, my family and all the other families in the building in the different apartments would have to turn on the oven um, and kind of use that heat from the oven to heat up the apartment. And sometimes we'd have to open up the oven door. Um, and so that obviously released a lot of carbon monoxide into the apartment. So we, we, we had a set of protocols around making sure the windows were open. And kind of once the door was shut to the bedroom, my parents and my sister and I all shared one bedroom in this tiny apartment in Brooklyn. And so once the door was closed, me and my kid sister weren't allowed to like, you know, get up and go to the bathroom or anything like that because of the risk that we would, you know, wander past this open oven. Um, and so there's a set of safety things that we had to do. But that's kind of was my early introduction to environmental justice, right? And the relationship between uh, poverty, uh, energy, equipment, and health, right? I mean, in my childhood, all three of those were right there. We did it, the building didn't have the money for a boiler. Um, we couldn't afford to move out. It was pretty unhealthy, and all of it was related to energy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so at eight, you all moved to Stone Mountain, Georgia, 30 minutes outside of Atlanta. Your teachers encouraged your parents to get you into Westminster, an elite prep school, uh, on a track and a basketball scholarship, which you did receive. So I'm curious, what was Westminster like? And then what were you like in high school? No, oh, I was boatloads of fun, uh, Emily. A, Still a barrel, barrel of laughs. What's, what's changed? Uh, I, was total, I was totally the opposite. I was, you know, I, was, I didn't have a lot of resources. Uh, my parents split up. Um, and so now my mom was single for a while we were in welfare. Um, and I started going to this kind of elite prep school for old money, you know, rich kids in Atlanta, the Westminster schools. Um, and, you know, if you were like a new internet mil- you know, millionaire or something like that, you couldn't get your kids into the school because you were new money. This was a school for old money. Um, and so um, what I learned was that a lot of the kids who I went to public school with, who came from low-income background like myself, they weren't any, like, less intelligent. Um, you know, they were as funny, they were as resourceful and as creative as all the rich kids that I went to a great school with, um, that I went to prep school with. Um, the rich kids had more opportunities, they had better training, they had better resources, but fundamentally, the level of talent, I was able to see firsthand there, there wasn't an uneven distribution of talent there. And so... I think, um, you know, as an adult, that's part of what drove me to really want to become a community organizer to kind of close that gap in terms of the opportunity set between the rich kids that I went to high school with and the poor kids that I went to elementary school with. Makes sense. I know you then went to Duke, uh, where you studied history with a focus on literature, African-American studies and political science. How did your time at Duke serve as a political awakening? How did it influence your understanding of how to go about creating change? Yeah, I mean, so by the time I got to Duke, I was pretty angry and pretty isolated. I mean, I think, you know, I knew that there were economic disparities. I knew that there were racial disparities and that, you know, a lot of things just weren't fair. And at Duke, as I studied the historical context for a lot of social inequity and started to begin to learn about environmental inequity from a structural standpoint, not just the experience of my family and my neighbors and my community where I grew up, but like, the structure of um, environmental injustice, structural racism, that kind of stuff. Um, it was a little, it was a, a little overwhelming. I mean, at Duke, um, you know, I'm 39, and so when I was 19, 
Our version of Trayvon Martin or George Floyd was this Haitian immigrant named Amadou Diallo, who uh, was shot 44 times by the NYPD because they thought he resembled a racist and he was pulling out his wallet to show them his ID to be like, I'm not a, you know, I'm not a rapist. Um, and so they shot him. And then, you know, after they checked his ID and saw they were wrong. And um, the issue was we, we had hoped that there would be some kind of like punishment or penalty for these officers' mistake. And there was not. They all received full exoneration, you know, full salary, full pension, whatever. And so as a young black man, you know, the lesson is you feel like your life just isn't valuable, right, to the society at all. And, and even if someone makes a mistake and kills you, there's just, you know, it doesn't matter, right? There's no punishment, there's no restitution, there's no compensation. And so that's a lot for any young person to deal with. Um, and so, yeah, I really struggled with it when I was in college, uh, took a lot of black studies classes, took a lot of American history classes and political science classes, but gradually um, was fortunate to have a professor, old white dude from Texas named Lawrence Goodwin, who spent a bunch of time researching the, the farmers uprising in the 1890s uh, across the country. Um, called the, the original capital P populist revolution revolt. And um, he actually ended up teaching me enough about social movements, in particular, the black civil rights movement in the 1960s, the student nonviolent coordinating committee, where people like Diane Nash and, and John Lewis uh, and Marion Barry and, and Bernard Lafayette um, as 19, 20 year old, 21 year old college students led a nonviolent revolution uh, to win African Americans the right to vote. And so, and kind of learning about those processes and that particular history, that helped me to kind of shift gears out of just being depressed and demoralized into thinking about, well, what can I do to contribute and make a difference here? There's a lot that we can learn today about the farmers in the 1890s. What, I mean, you know, as we look at this election, right, that we just had. Uh, we've got 70 million Americans that voted for Donald Trump, despite the fact that we're in a pandemic where he has no plan and the economy has been wrecked. And then you have almost 80 million people that voted for Biden. You've got this split. How do you bring the country back together again? The farmers in the 1890s would talk about the, the economic kind of meat into potatoes deliverables that the government is supposed to offer working Americans that transcends party. And if you offer people like economic materialist um, incentives that can change their life and change their kids' lives, after you do that, then you can have a conversation about politics and partisan politics and how to, how to heal a divided country. So there's a lot of lessons that we all can learn from those farmers. Agreed. And this actually... Uh, fits really well into into what you did next. So um, after graduating from Duke, you moved back to Brooklyn. Uh, this was in 2003 and worked in Brownsville as a community organizer. In Brownsville, there's over 10,000 low-income people who live in just 17 adjacent housing projects. Brownsville remains the poorest census tract in New York, and 35% of people in that neighborhood end up in the criminal justice system at some point in their life. New York spends an average of $1 million per year per block incarcerating residents in Brownsville. And so you spent three years knocking on doors there uh, while working for the nation's largest supportive housing developer. When people opened their door to you and talked to you, what did they say? What did they care about? And what did you learn? People were, people really needed jobs. 
the 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 open air drug trade, which was a part of um, which was one of the primary economic drivers uh, in Brownsville, in Bed-Stuy when I was growing up, uh, you know, selling drugs is a dangerous business. It's only profitable for like the people at the top, like the kingpins, but everybody else is at great risk of violence, um, being arrested by the police, fighting with other drug dealers. It's like a terrible job. Um, even for the people at the top. And a lot of times you don't even make minimum wage when you're out there selling drugs, like you're out there in the cold, you know, it's horrible. So it turned out that a lot of the the young men who were involved in that drug trade, they'd like give their right arm for a job as a custodian at like the local elementary school, right? And so we'd, we'd end up talking with them um, and, and yeah, it turned out that they were willing to clean toilets or whatever, because uh, it was a steady wage. It was a higher wage. And they could get health care and they'd be safe. Right. They wouldn't have to be running from the cops. Um, and, you know, no one really feels great uh, dealing drugs unless you're a psychopath. But um, so and, 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 and so that was the, the young men who were involved in a lot of the drug violence. And then all of their family members, their mothers and sisters and uncles, um, again, many of whom had been in and out of the criminal justice system themselves, were all trying to figure out what set of policies, like what set of changes could you make in that community uh, to reduce the amount of like open air violence. I remember one day I was coming out of um, our office and walking by an elementary school and we heard what turned out to be gunshots, right? I didn't, I didn't recognize the sound. It had been a long time since I'd heard gunshots. So I thought it was like a car muffler, like backfiring. But there was, uh, it was like 235. And so there's like a hundred little kids who had just came out of the elementary school and been released for the day and were waiting for their parents to come pick them up. And all the little kids had on these like brightly colored backpacks, you know, as little kids do. And as soon as they heard the gunshots, they hit the floor, right? Because they knew gunshots, they knew gunfire. And so I just remember looking around and seeing all these like brightly colored backpacks like on the ground where the kids had like hit the ground to, to hide from gunfire. And that's when it clicked for me, like, oh, that's not a muffler, like it's gunfire, like you need to get low. And, um, and, and you know, it was a tough neighborhood and you don't want children anywhere, whether it's Brownsville, Brooklyn, or, you know, uh, the 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 Israeli-Palestinian conflict at the border, um, at Ramallah. You don't want little kids to have to learn those kind of lessons. Um, after three years of doing this work in Brownsville, in 2008, you left to join the Obama campaign when he was running for president. You were field director across eight states. And then in 2009, you served as national field director for Green Jobs for the Change to Win Federation. As part of this role, you were consulting with DOE uh, on, on issues related to energy efficiency and thinking of creative ways to get those projects financed and get jobs created. Um, what, what were your takeaways from that experience? Yeah, that's an interesting question, I think, particularly now, right? We, 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 we had this vision, or the Obama administration had this vision of supplying venture capital to you know, Tesla and SolarCity and lots of solar companies and wanted to do the same for energy efficiency and green buildings. The solar stuff worked out. I mean, if you look at Tesla today, that all worked. The energy efficiency and green building stuff did not work in the same way. Um, so we had about $90 billion in labor union pension funds at the table. 
We had several Wall Street banks. We had governors. We had mayors who wanted to set up green municipal bonds for energy efficiency to go building to building. And I remember Secretary of Energy Stephen Chu wanted to have like trucks that were going to pump insulation and just go building to building down a block and and kind of help to green the buildings. And we were going to train and hire construction workers uh, to do all of this green construction. And we couldn't get it to work. And largely it was because of a lot of the challenges that plague energy efficiency to this day. The high cost of engineering assessments uh, in all of the buildings uh, and the fact that Wall Street wasn't comfortable financing uh, towards projected energy savings in buildings. After after that work in 2011, you were admitted to Columbia Business School to pursue an MBA. And then a year into the program, you got recruited by the Service Employees International Union, or SEIU, to be the get-out-the-vote get director for Obama's 2012 campaign, which you accepted that role. So you ended up doing that while you were in business school. And then you ended up starting Block Power while you were in business school. So two questions. First, was business school worth it? And then second, what made you start Block Power while in business school at Columbia? Yeah, business school is totally worth it for me. Um, you know, I was a community organizer and then I became a political organizer on the first Obama campaign. I didn't know the first thing about business. I didn't understand revenue, net income. Uh, I didn't know actually what a stock actually was. And so um, after working with the labor unions to try to set up green construction during the Obama-Biden administration, um, I knew that there are going to have to be financial and business-oriented solutions in order to solve the problems of how do you do equipment assessments on a building-by-building basis? How do you get investment banks and pension funds to actually deploy capital into greening buildings so you can create the jobs that I knew could, could, could hire the young men who, who, who needed jobs, right? Who were in the drug trade, right? In communities all over the country. And so um, that's why I enrolled in business school. And for me, you know, not having a business background, not coming from a family of entrepreneurs, it was a critical uh, piece of education for me. And so I, I strongly recommend it um, and, and don't regret, uh, you know, cost, cost a quarter of a million dollars. I mean, I think... Um, you want to try to find somebody who's going to give you some scholarships or forgivable loans, uh, which is helpful. Um, and I started Block Power in school. I, I, I went to B-School with the idea of trying to solve uh, the energy efficiency and green buildings challenge. I didn't know if that was going to be as a nonprofit or working for Siemens, coming to work for you, Emily. But um, I wanted to solve that problem. <laughs> I wanted to I wanted to solve this problem. And so, you know, halfway through business school, it, it became clear that I was going to have to start the company in order to solve the problem in the way that it needed to be solved. No one else is going to do it. I was going to have to do it. I very much share that sentiment. And it's part of why I started Powerhouse. It's that same mentality. Um, so as I understand it, Block Power utilizes your proprietary software for analysis, leasing, project management, and monitoring of urban clean energy projects, covering everything from stuff you've mentioned like financing to engineering to underwriting to installation. Um, in your words, what what does Block Power do and how does your background as a community organizer help? So, so, so Block Power makes buildings greener, smarter, and healthier, right? We, we want to take buildings 100% off of fossil fuels. We know that when we take buildings off of fossil fuels, we're going to save them money and make them more profitable. 
and make them more valuable. Um, we know that we're going to make those buildings healthier because you're not burning fossil fuels in your basement. So we're reducing indoor air pollution, which causes asthma. Asthma is a comorbidity to COVID-19, right? And we know that we need to make the buildings smarter by installing smart devices that are connected to the internet, that produce data. We can use machine learning. We can use the cloud to help monitor and optimize what's happening in these buildings, right? So we want buildings to be smarter, greener, and healthier. And we've built a software platform and a, developed a structured financial product with Goldman Sachs that allows us to analyze, finance, and upgrade buildings so that they can be greener, smarter, and healthier. Love it. That is a better description than mine. Um, what is Block Power's business model? How do you all make money? Um, we, we, we have built a software platform that does a lot of the building by building analysis using machine learning, um, and, uh, mobile computing for data collection, et cetera. And so we've built a set of software applications, uh, to reduce the cost of analysis. And so we look to complete green buildings projects, right? We finance those projects, we analyze and generate a scope of work to, to prescribe what mix of green equipment makes sense for each and every building that can save that building over 10%, 20%, 30% on their current cost, right? Um, when we finance a green building project, we take a fee. So if we're investing $100,000 in solar panels and smart thermostats and, and heat pumps in a building, we may take ten dollars to $20,000 as our fee for arranging that transaction and project managing it to completion. And then the building owner repays our financing over five years, over 10 years, over 15 years. Um, and so we, we may take some of the long stream of payments over 15 years from that building owner as well. And then last, 150 American cities have passed legislation that they want to go green. They want to be 100% renewable. We can charge a city's sustainability budget or a utility company's energy efficiency budget for offering our services in their territory. Awesome. Uh, I know that in a thousand buildings, block power customers are saving, as you mentioned, 20 to 40 percent on their energy bills each year due to 20 to 75 percent reduction in energy usage. And you estimate that block power's technology can reduce U.S. GHG emissions by two to three percent in the next three to five years by serving five million buildings. How's block power going to do this? Yeah. So, I mean, we are lucky that we've had the chance, um, as you mentioned, Emily, like, you know, we met. It's coming out to Silicon Valley um, to learn the ways of Silicon Valley, right? How do you take a company like Airbnb or Uber or Lyft that starts as a small idea and expand it so that it becomes global? And so the question is, how do you how do you do that for climate tech? How do you do that for green buildings? And so we think we have an approach that allows us to do that. That we've built a software application that's scalable to to millions and millions and millions of buildings across the country and eventually globally. We, you know, one of our investors, Eric and Wendy Schmidt, they flew us to the Congo to test out our business model in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And we were able to learn about the international implications of some of the work that we're doing. And so in our view, we have a software application that allows us to analyze and finance uh, green buildings projects across the country. Um, and as we expand that software platform's capability, we can offer our services to more and more buildings. Um, the shorter answer to your question is we, we're looking to identify three to six American cities 
we think Philadelphia is one, maybe Milwaukee, maybe Chicago, where they've already passed laws that they need to be 100% renewable energy in 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. In New York City, we have significant greenhouse gas reduction over the next 10 years, huge goals by law. And so let's let's green those cities and take them 100% off of fossil fuels, all of the buildings in these three to five cities, let's take them off fossil fuels in the next few years. And we think that's going to create a blueprint that allows the next 100 American cities to, to jump off of fossil fuels. Nice. Uh, I am here in Oakland, California. Powerhouse is headquartered and has always been in Oakland, which is where we first met at our very first office. Uh, Tell me about your projects in Oakland. Yeah. So um, we're super excited to to work in Oakland. Uh, Our lead investors, Capeport Capital, um, are based in Oakland. Uh, Frida Capeport Klein and Mitch um, have been huge mentors uh, to us. Um, and teaching us about Silicon Valley and teaching us about Oakland. The Elemental Accelerator, um, you know, has a team that's based in the Bay Area. Uh, the, Sh- the Schmitz are out there. And so, um, and even, you know, Ben and Felicia Hartz and Andreessen Hartz, you know, our first investors, they, you know, grew up in Berkeley, you know, huge supporters of Oakland, love the Raiders, been to a couple Raiders games with them. And so Oakland as a city is important to us and it's important to many of our investors. And so we have alignment around, you know, how do you work with Nick and his team um, at the Community Choice Aggregator to think about, can we green enough buildings in Oakland to shut down uh, a, a natural gas peaker plant down by Jack London Square, right? Like how many buildings is that? Is it 200? Is it 2,000? If, if we put heat pumps, if we put um, smart hot water systems, electric hot water systems in buildings, if we put in LED lights, if we put in solar, if we put in batteries, how many buildings do, 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 do we need to, to, to manage in order to reduce natural gas consumption sufficiently to shut down that fossil fuel plant down by Jack London Square? And so uh, we're working on that project with Nick and his team as well as the team at Pacific Gas and Electric. There's a team of folks inside PG&E, difficult circumstances. They're going through a bankruptcy. They've burned down half the state. But there's a lot of committed uh, executives there who are focused on clean energy and trying to, trying to get something done in difficult circumstances. So we got 20, we got 20 buildings, apartment buildings and single family homes uh, in Oakland that we're working through right now. And we're looking to expand that to a few hundred buildings over the next you know, 12 to 24 months. Very cool. As an Oaklander, I am proud that you're here. So happy to learn more about those projects. Um, what we want to believe- do is we want to make sure that the apartment buildings that we do are underneath one of the billboards oh, God. that have your face on it. So it that was when one we do billboard. The, <laughs> we can like co-brand and co-market the project <laughs> with Powerhouse and Emily Kirsch and Block Power. That's what we want to do. So we'll see. Maybe I would we'll be fund, honored. Maybe we'll fund bringing that billboard back for you and for us. We'll get our we'll get our Marcoms team on it. Um, thank you for bringing that up, Donnell. Uh, you you believe that there is a silver a silver bullet to addressing the climate crisis. Uh, everyone wants to know what is that silver bullet and how does it enable property owners to agree to do these efficiency upgrades? There's always been this 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 dichotomy between owners versus renters and who gets the savings. So what is the silver bullet and 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 how do you get property owners to say yes? We, we now know that we can do for buildings what Tesla is doing for cars. We can take the fossil fuel equipment out of a building in the same way that Tesla has removed it from the automobile and put in 
all electric equipment in a building and run that building. So we could not do that 10 years ago, but now we can. And the, the hardware that allows us to do that is the cold climate heat pump. Um, a lot of awesome Japanese manufacturers who are partners of ours um, have, have innovated and developed the cold climate heat pump to where it's sophisticated enough to where you can run your building remove it entirely off of fossil fuels and run it from renewable electricity. Um, you need to work with your utility partner, and that's why it's so great that Nick is here in Oakland, to make sure that your utility is providing you 100% clean energy through the electricity grid. But now we have the opportunity to move millions and millions of buildings off of fossil fuels entirely um, and move them to renewable energy in the same way that we're doing with automobiles. And so the cold climate heat pump, that's the silver bullet. And how and what about that piece on uh, how, what incentivizes landlords to say yes? They're going to they're going to reduce their energy consumption. Uh, if they work with block power, we figure out how to reduce their energy costs. So now their building is more profitable than it was when they were using fossil fuels. The building's healthier. The building's greener because the building's healthier and greener. It's now 11 to 12 percent more valuable when you resell that building. And so we think it's important. We want building owners to know about the, the environmental benefits and sustainability benefits of green buildings projects. But it's really important that they can see bottom line financial impact in year one, year two, year three, uh, to provide tangible financial incentives for them to move off of fossil fuels. And so that is what our engineering and software and financial packages offer. Um, we make buildings more profitable. Buildings make more money while they're going green. What It Takes is supported by Google, leading the way to a carbon-free future. In 2007, Google was the first major company to be carbon neutral. 10 years later, it became the first company of its size to match 100% of yearly electricity use with renewables. Every step towards decarbonization is a step in the right direction. But to stop the worst impacts of climate change, we'll need to do more than offset and reduce emissions. We need to eliminate them. That's why Google plans to be the first company to source carbon-free energy around the clock everywhere it operates by 2030. In the process, they'll need to piece together the solutions you hear about on this podcast. Machine learning, batteries, cheap, clean energy, and human ingenuity on a global scale. The next decade holds a lot of opportunities for new technologies, new approaches to energy purchasing, and new policies. Google is partnering with all kinds of energy innovators to make the future carbon-free. If you want to get inspired by the challenge, or if your business can help Google get to 24-7 carbon-free by 2030, visit g.co forward slash carbon-free by 2030. You've said that the block power strategy enables underserved communities to own the economics and the wealth creation that comes from block power's innovation. What does that look like on the ground? Yeah, so there's a team of people in Oakland that we're working with. We we believe, I mean, the the structured financial product that we develop with Goldman requires like a holding company, a special purpose entity. Um, you know, it's just a, an LLC that bankers, investment bankers invented, but it's a holding company. All of, the, all of the clean energy equipment that we invest in goes into this holding company and uh, is owned and operated over time and oftentimes leased 
to low-income building owners who can't afford uh, to pay for it themselves and may not have access to banking um, to where they could take out a loan to pay for it, right? In our view, these holding companies need to be co-owned by low-income community members. And so if you have local nonprofits or low-income families, head of households, can you give them 50 bucks, 100 bucks as a dividend from stock in the community shares inside a clean energy holding company that's created and co-owned by, you know, Block Power, a set of community groups, and, you know, Goldman Sachs is our uh, investment partner or American Family Life Insurance Company is our investment partner. And so when you, when you drive across rural America, you run into these rural electric co-ops that Franklin Delano Roosevelt set up way back when. Americans in the rural countryside literally own stock and shares in companies that own and operate utility companies. And so we are bringing that to urban communities in 2020 to say, not only are we going to invest in clean energy and building electrification and energy efficiency in your building and in your community, but you're going to own it. So now these ideas or concerns around, well, how do we get you know, people of color or low-income people involved in the climate movement? Well, we're going to give you an economic stake. We're going to give you equity, not just in terms of are we going to treat you fairly, equity in terms of we're going to give you stock in a, in a new corporation that we're co-creating so that you have financial incentives to participate in the clean energy economy. And with that ownership comes a perspective on how do we create jobs for low-income communities and, and get them to participate in this clean energy ecosystem along, along with us. Speaking of capital, when you were fundraising, you heard 200 no's from investors before you got your first yes. Now you're backed by institutions that you've mentioned like Goldman Sachs and Salesforce. Uh, you just closed your Series A round about six weeks ago. What was it like raising capital from the beginning through the Series A? And what advice would you give to founders that are raising capital, especially underrepresented founders? I'm going to try to get myself into trouble here because we're, we're live and I don't, I don't want to get into trouble because I'm going to need to keep raising money. But I also want to say, <laughs> I, <laughs> I, <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm not going to name names. I, I will say that um, I'll, I'll make a joke that if, well, it's not a joke. One of our investors, when I talked to him two or three years ago and said I was struggling to raise capital, he was like, yeah, man. You know, just hire some white people. That's what I did. He's black. And it's Dahani Jones, who used to play football for the Giants. And he's an investor in A16Z. And he and I were having a drink at an at a A16Z conference. And he was just like, yeah, you know, yeah, it's hard out there. Just, just hire some white people and send them into the fundraising meetings. And it'll, it'll, it'll clear things up. So that's one piece of advice that I would offer. Um, we'll start there. I think... Um, it, it was really difficult for us raising capital. Um, I think not only were there racial issues and gender issues, which have been talked about at length in terms of how VC is set up in this country currently, um, early stage investing structurally, you know, relies on a lot of instinct and gut. I mean, Emily, you're, you're a VC, you, you understand this stuff. And so you, you have a feeling about an investment opportunity um, you try to rationalize it. You write an investment memo about it. But a lot of it is is instinctive, right? Or a lot of it is like non-rational. It's right brain, not left brain. Sometimes and often, particularly when you're trying to distinguish between entrepreneurs, 
who haven't built anything or done anything or who don't have any revenue? How do you know which 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 entrepreneur to bet on? And so, to be fair, I know it's difficult for investors as well. Um, the advice that the advice that I would offer, um, you know, Black Americans uh, and women who are trying to raise venture capital is to uh, to approach it like a marriage. What do I mean by that? Like, uh, my wife and I dated for several years. I was very fortunate that she decided to date me and then marry me. Very, just very fortunate. But um, an investment is a serious long-term relationship that may last longer than a marriage, right? Seven, 10 years. A lot of marriages don't make it that long. So what, what I recommend is that you look for potential investors who have already made long-term commitments to women, to people of color, whether it's in their investment portfolio and they have other founders of color or women who you can look at and you, you know, you're not there first, like they've already crossed the gender Rubicon or the racial Rubicon. Um, or I would look to their philanthropic life. Maybe they haven't been able to make great investments, but in their philanthropy, as they give away money, uh, have they been able to make long-term commitments to women, to people of color? Um, you know, who, who are their colleagues and coworkers? Who do they co-invest with? Um, for me, uh, screening out potential investors in that way um, has been incredibly helpful. And I still, I still talk to everybody, but I know when I'm walking into a meeting uh, at a firm where there's like no women, there's no black people, there's no Latinos, I don't expect money from them. They may have great ideas. They may have great questions for me. I'm going to learn from those great ideas and questions. That's all I'm getting from them. Um, and so ha- ha- having keeping that in mind has been helpful for me. And that's what I would offer to other you know early stage entrepreneurs who are fundraising. Also, they should look at crypto and they should look at selling a token instead of raising VC. So... We could double click on that at the end as part of the future of energy and fundraising. Um, but for now, curious, um, just about every founder that's been on what it takes has been within weeks, uh, days, in some cases, hours of closing their doors, myself included. Was there a moment when you thought you were going to have to close the doors on Block Power? Yeah, we um, we we got to a place where we only had six months of capital once. And um, that was like sufficiently terrifying to... Um, a lot of my uh, uh, colleagues at the time uh, that we had to make like major changes. Uh, Block Power has really long sales cycles. It may take 12, 18 months for us to, you know, start a conversation with utility or government before we sign the contract. And so six months of capital, you're, you're like 12 months of capital short, right? Um, of getting to revenue. And so it you know, really scared a lot of employees. We, we ended up transitioning like seven uh, members of our senior. We had about 35, 36 people at the time. And so we trans seven out of nine, seven out of 10 uh, senior people at the company. We transitioned out uh, just because everyone was so terrified and wasn't, wasn't sure uh, what the future held. And, you know, we've been fortunate from there to kind of learn our lessons, to adopt more of a startup mentality and mindset. As we think about recruiting, we have more clarity in our culture and letting people know, you know, what the expectations that they should have as they join our company. You know, they need to be able to take on a little bit of risk. If not, maybe this is not for them. So we try to screen for that now. So that's the lesson that we learned there. Hmm. Was that the single hardest moment in Block Power history was was transitioning those seven out of nine 
execs out? And if not, what was, what was the single hardest moment in Block Power's history? Yeah, well, I mean, we transitioned those folks out and it wasn't clear that Block Power had a path forward. Um, and for me, as, as much as I uh, complain and, uh, and rightfully so complain about Silicon Valley, you know, for us, you know, Frida Kapoor Klein, Mitch Kapoor, Ben and Felicia Haritz, you know, when I was catatonic on my bed, you know, thinking about having to go into an all hands meeting and saying that we're going to have to lay off, you know, 50, 60 percent of the company. How do you say that? Who were you laying off? Like, how, you know, you know, it was really the Cape Pours and the Haritzes who like scraped me up off the floor, um, taught me some of the lessons that I needed to learn from the experience surrounded me with support, got me into executive coaching. Um, you know, I asked Ben to reinvest. He invested within three hours um, from Andrews and Haritz. You know, Mitch Kapoor led around. And so for me, um, that was uh, the hardest part in Block Power's history, but also one of the most beautiful parts because it really was transformative for me um, to, 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 to be able to partner um, with our lead investors in that way and to, to, to kind of learn that they had my back and that, and that I wasn't in it alone, that was like a really beautiful experience. So it was hard, but it was also, also awesome. Um, when you're talking to investors like those who you, well, maybe not those you just mentioned, but when generally speaking, when you're talking to investors, uh, uh, potential customers, other entrepreneurs, when you're at conferences, I imagine you rarely see people who look like you what do you want to say to those who share in that experience of not seeing themselves represented, especially to black people who share in that experience? I think I think that I think that black people, um, we have some work to do making sure that we're building up a community amongst ourselves uh, for those of us who are in the climate space or environmental justice world together. And so, you know, myself, Ken Alston, a few other executives are looking at how do we start to convene a working group that regularly meets and builds up a community of Black and maybe Latinx folks who are in this space so that we start to build a sense of um, coherence and community amongst ourselves? So, so that's one part of it that's on us. Again, to entrepreneurs, I would, I would really find ways to differentiate between the people that you really want to work with over a 10-year period versus everybody else. And so John McIntyre at AmFam, who led our Series A, um, you know, this is somebody we built a relationship of trust. You know, he, I flew out to, to the Packers game in Wisconsin because he's from Wisconsin and loves the Packers. And that's, that's just how Wisconsin rolls. Like, if you're not going to the Packers game, like, you haven't really done it. And so... Um, how do you build that trust um, across racial lines, across class lines, across industry lines? There's a way to be thoughtful about it, I think. And so for me, again, one of the most important things is what is the criteria by which you're selecting your partners, whether it's customers, investors, uh, industry partnerships? How can you find somebody like you, Emily, who um, has a background and a sensibility around um, and, and shares values, right? Right. Um, those kinds of things um, 
you know, when I was in the political world, it's all about values and mission alignment and all that kind of stuff. I didn't understand how important I was in business. And so what I would say is that that young people and young black people in the climate tech industry need to need to make sure that they're using val- shared values as a criteria for who they choose to work with. And that will help you feel less lonely because you'll identify like minded people who may not share your race and background, but they share your values. And that's enough of a of a of a place to common ground to get started. Mm, I appreciate that. Uh, you are our first what it takes guest since the Biden Harris victory, and you obviously met, worked on Obama's 08 and 2012 campaign, which we talked about. Looking forward, you believe that reducing greenhouse gas emissions depends on communities of color, and and it's not always framed that way. It's sort of like oh, communities of color hit first and worst, and things that are true. But but you think GHG emission reductions and solving the climate crisis depends on communities of color. What does that look like? Uh, and what do you want the Biden-Harris administration to know as it relates to that belief? How, how, how can I not get myself in trouble here? Okay, so, <laughs> so you have your user adoption curve, right? We'll go high level. I'll keep myself out of trouble. You have your early adopters, and then you have your mass market. And in climate tech, a lot of times, like Tesla, you'll say, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sell this expensive sports car to rich people who care about the environment. It's going to cost over $100,000 a year. And... Uh, they're going to start buying it. We'll take the revenue from that, invest in R&D. Gradually, we'll lower the price to $30,000. Now, working people and regular people can afford a Tesla, right? Um, And so that's kind of a traditional go-to-market for certain kinds of software, certain kinds of hardware. It's a tech go-to-market. I think we got to flip that on its head. Um, Politically, there, there is no path to mass market adoption without communities of color in this country. There is no path to the Democratic Party winning, passing any kind of policy on climate whatsoever without deep, deep engagement from communities of color and the political strength that we represent. It's just not going to happen. We can't even win the Senate without turning out the black vote in Georgia. Right. And so I am I am of the view that we have to start with uh, the mass market and communities of color and offering uh, them services and products that make sense to them in their budget and in their in, in, in their perspective in order to reduce greenhouse gases on a time frame that's going to make sense. So we just have to leapfrog a lot of this uh, nonsense that we often do in tech and, and clean climate tech around, you know, let's let's go out to the early adopters. And if they like it, then we'll, lower, you know, and we'll iterate and this and that. We got to We got to be more creative. Um, because we, we, we need politics and policy and there's no path forward without, without black and brown communities. Um, we need the buildings and communities that they represent to reduce fossil fuels. And we need the culture that black and brown people have brought to America in order to sell the products, right, um, to, to white and black Americans alike. And so there's just no path forward without deep engagement up front. And the climate tech community needs to like, get on board with this and reorganize itself um, so that we can kind of move forward and be an inclusive climate tech ecosystem. Agreed. Last two questions between before we close with our high voltage round. Uh, first, you met your partner, Larcy, I believe in your late 20s when you were working as a community organizer. Uh, you now have a five-year-old son named Nash. Uh, first, what was it like becoming a parent? And then what has it been like being a founder and CEO, a partner and a parent all at the same time? In a pandemic. Um, uh, Larcy and Nash are the best things that ever happened to me. Um, 
we named Nash after Diane Nash. She was a civil rights leader in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which is what I studied in high school. And, um, you know, proud, proud to name him after one of the most influential Black women um, of the 20th century. Um, you know, we were in New York. I think any young family in New York, it's a tough place to raise uh, children. Um, you got to, like, hold your baby in one hand, your groceries in the other hand, and, like, fight off rats on the subway. You, like, kick it. <laughs> you know, it's a lot. It's a lot happening in, in, in New York. <laughs> But I think it really clarified for me, um, we have to get this climate thing right. Like once you have a kid and you know that the scientists are saying when your son is your age, right? Like things are going to be in a really dire place. Um, Things are really going to be terrible. Like the Greenland is already melting at a rate that we didn't anticipate. What are the things that we can do now to alter this trajectory in a meaningful way. And that is what gives you the, or at least gave me the power and strength to rebuild the company after I had seven senior people leave, to go through 200 investor meetings, some of which were incredibly humiliating and dismissive, where people said ridiculously dumb things to me. And instead of me responding and being like, I know you think you're smarter than me. You're not smarter than me. Like, I went to Duke. I went to Columbia. Like, where did you went to state? Like, what are you talking? Like, I went to state school. Don't 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 hate on state schools. We're not. We're. I didn't say that. That take that back. But the. (laughs) But I think that um, the arrogance of VC overall, that kind of stuff matters to them, right? And so I had a VC tell me, "Well, you know, you went to Duke, but you didn't go to Stanford." And your, your co-founder went to MIT, but it wasn't Stanford. And we only invest literally in people who go to Stanford. They told us straight up, right? And so they said, you guys are in New York. You didn't go to Stanford. No dice, right? And so you run into those kinds of things in the VC world where they try to put people into hierarchies and rank people and whatever crazy archetypes they have going on. The reason that we were able to push through and power through all of that trash that we got um, from those folks is because of of my family, right? Because of my wife, because of my kid, and because of we're, we're trying to build a company. Yes, we want to make $10 billion and build a giant company, but we want to do something for the planet that's going to Im- improve, improve life for my kid, right? And that is what allowed us to power through. Uh, I am going to move us into our high voltage round to close it out. And I'll put this last question in into the high voltage round. Uh, so these are quick questions, quick answers, quick meaning like 10 seconds. The first of which I know you've been thinking a lot about for the past few weeks since we've been preparing for this show. Donnell Baird, if you were going to be an animal, what animal would you be and why? A hippopotamus, Kirsch. Let me tell you why. <laughs> you are the third, I think the third hippopotamus on what Hippo? it takes. What did, what did the other people go, say? Go on. Yeah. What was their rationale? Um, Do you remember? Uh, uh, Jigger Shaw just liked being in the water. Uh-huh. I think that was his yeah, number that's, one. That's Jigger. E- easy go lucky. Yeah. Float on the float on the water. <laughs> so I think um, for me, hippos. I always thought they were like super friendly, but they are the number one killer of human beings of any animal. And so I think the combination of friendliness and killer instinct is something that I really, really admire. Love it. Uh, other than yourself, to whom do you attribute your success? Uh, my wife. <laughs> uh, when have you failed? I fail all the time. I mean, I, I, I make wrong decisions all the time. Uh, 
Uh, I got in a lot of trouble on the Obama campaign because when we were trying to win the state of Connecticut, I started to just ignore my bosses and I didn't communicate and manage upwards properly. And I got into a lot of trouble. And Valerie Jarrett gave me a big time talking to about my failure in that instance. And the lesson was, even when you're ignoring your bosses and supervisors, you should communicate that you're going to ignore them. What is the best investment you've ever made? Uh, Marry my wife. <laughs> what is something that you thought was true that you no longer believe? I didn't, I didn't think that this country was ever going to change itself and open itself up to black and brown people. And I think we've had a difficult four years, but I do think that um, the younger generations of all Americans want to be equal and Americans together. I did not believe that growing up in Atlanta. I do believe that now. Like, we will, we will get there. When are you your best self? Uh, after I exercise um, and after um, I eat a lot, of, like, a lot of kale and meditate. It's like three levels of, it's like diet, meditation, you know, exercise. If I hit all three, then I have a shot at being my best self. Hmm. What is your worst trait? Um, I'm extremely impatient. If you could change one thing about the world, what would it be? Uh, it, it really it really bothers me that kids around the world, um, I, I don't think that kids should be hungry. And if there is just a way to make sure every kid, you know, had, you know, food to, to have a shot, um, that's what I would do. That's the one thing I would do. If there was just one person who was going to hear this conversation and this episode of What It Takes, who would you want it to be? Uh, I got I got to go with Bill Gates because I think. I think Bill, I think Bill's really trying to figure out the climate thing in a major way. And um, I think we have a set of solutions that have been developed um, and they just they just need to be brought before him so that he can he'll he'll get it. But we just need to put it in front of him. I'm sure someone listening can help with that. What is your best quality? Uh, Marrying my wife. (laughs) It's a good answer to most of these questions. Yeah, it's true. When you when you meet her, you'll see she's great. Finish these sentences for me. Companies fail because? Uh, lack of vision, lack of capital. If you really knew me, you would know. I'm, I'm, people think I'm abrasive. I'm actually hypersensitive. And then there's a layer of abrasiveness on top of the hypersensitivity. Mm. It's really complicated. I get that. I get mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Introvert. Introvert. Hypersensitive introvert. Mm-hmm. Yeah, introvert. Shocking. That part, that mm-hmm. part surprises me a little bit. Yeah. Not, not the other pieces. Like a hippo. Like a hippopotamus. Hippos are introverts. This is a fact that most people don't know. <laughs> uh, uh, the future of energy looks like? Uh, it's going to be distributed. So just like media has been distributed, we all are our own media producers. We make our own news. We distribute it through our smartphones. Energy is going to be the same way. How is the existing incumbent energy industry going to adjust? Who's going to own that distributed energy platform? Uh, who's going to make money off of it? How much clean energy is there going to be? Those are the questions we got to figure out pronto. If I could have done one thing differently, I would have married my wife <laughs> five years before I married her. Biggest regret. She's going to hear this, right? She she doesn't listen to any of the podcasts, news stuff. None of There's it. There's so many. I she, mean, can you can she, you blame her? She she just is totally uninterested in any of this stuff. Um, so she probably will not hear it, but I think, I think for me, my, my marriage has been an incredible source of like education 
instability for me. And uh, I would be further along as a human. My business would be further along if I had the good sense to marry my wife a couple years earlier so that she could start, you know, taking me to school. <laughs> if the world knew me for one thing, it would be? Uh, solving climate change. I'm most proud of? That I'm going to solve climate change. <laughs> Last question to be a to 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 lead a successful company, what it takes is grit. Well said. Donnell, this has been so much fun. I'm so grateful to know you and to call you a friend, and I really appreciate you doing this. Who wouldn't be thrilled to be friends with the Oprah of climate <laughs> tech? I mean, this this is really just a special moment for me. <laughs> and I'm I'm delighted that um you asked us to come on. You're doing amazing things at um, Powerhouse, and we're, we're, I'm, I'm your biggest fan, and uh, look forward to working with you to solve climate change. You can listen to all our What It Takes interviews since 2017 right here, and join us for new stories of founders who are building a carbon-free future, their upbringings, their risks, their failures, and their breakthroughs that are transforming our world. We're launching new episodes monthly throughout 2021. Subscribe everywhere you get your podcasts. What It Takes is produced by Powerhouse in partnership with Postscript Audio. Powerhouse partners with leading corporations and investors to help them lead the next century of clean technology innovation. Our fund, Powerhouse Ventures, invests in founding teams, building innovative software to rapidly transform our global energy and mobility systems. You can learn more at powerhouse.fund. That's powerhouse.fund. Our executive producer is Stephen Lacey. Our producers are Jamie Kaiser, Rye Story Fisher, and Emma McDonough. Sean Marquand mixed the episodes and composed our music. I'm Emily Kirsch. This is What It Takes.